we're going to continue our study of this uh, uh, book that gives us a lot of good, valuable applications for functioning uh, honorably in the last day. So it's it's uh, I've done this book several times. And it's always a joy to go through it and see once again what it's got to say, because it's a call to uh, honor and virtue, integrity, and things of of this nature that uh, just got kicked by the wayside in our uh, present environment in this world. So we're at Second Peter chapter one verse three. We are looking at a study of epinosis and what that word actually means. And uh, is it not back here? Oh, thank you. We shall try to find this source. I think we're unknown. We're unknown. Okay. That's typical. Okay. <clears throat> so we're going to take a look at this word epinosis and try to get a better grasp of what it means. Translated full knowledge. And uh, we saw last week, sometimes people have defined this word to mean a spiritual knowledge that only believers can have and all that. But when you do a word study, which is the way to do things as you're studying the scripture, you take a word and you take a look and you see how it's used, where it's used in the Bible. And uh, you, you can see from outside the Bible how is it used, but more particularly, where is it used and how is it used in the Bible. When you start looking at the word epinosis, you find out clearly that it is uh, not just for believers because even unbelievers can have an epinosis of certain activities. Pilate had an epinosis, and he knew what they were getting ready to do to Christ, and I don't think we'd ever remotely put him in the realm of a believer obtaining spiritual knowledge. Now, it can be a spiritual knowledge, but that's only if you're led of the Holy Spirit, and then it becomes very important because your full knowledge can be uh, really a full knowledge. But literally, the word means a knowledge upon knowledge. Gnosis is knowledge. Epi is upon, a knowledge upon a knowledge. So to know more about it. So we're looking at this word because it's going to kind of give us a, a preview. It's a lead-in to some very important principles of life that we're going to find in the next few verses. So let's take a few moments for prayer, as is our custom, to uh, prepare ourselves to study the Word of God. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, again, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your blessings and your test. We thank you for the freedom we still have in this country to come together and be able to open up your word and to see um, just what you want us to do. So, Father, I pray that's where the Holy Spirit would take us this morning. Help us to understand your word, remember it, and be able to recall it and use it wisely as we face the various tests of life. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2 Peter 1-2, it says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace is where it starts. In the full knowledge and the epinosis of the God, even Jesus, our Lord. And this is an interesting construction in this verse. We've already covered it. But it sets up an equation. The God, even Jesus, our Lord. Jesus is not a man who became God. He's always been God. And when you compare Scripture with Scripture, you find it out very clearly. 
John 1, 1 says that he was the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God, and he brought all things into being. And then verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Glory as the only begotten of the Father. So God became man in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. Now you have to, to constantly remember that. Now in verse 3, we, we find that um, we're told, to, it says, Since his divine power has granted by decree, that's the word doreomai, to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and virtue. Now, the life and godliness, what do we, and what does this word everything mean? Does it mean everything? Everything we need to really have an abundant life and to be godly. He's given to us by decree. Verse 4 is going to become even more powerful when, when we get to it. But how do we know this through the full knowledge, the epinosis of him, of Christ? Not just of the written word, but where the written word takes us, which is the living word, which is the person of Christ. Of him who called us by his own glory and his virtue. So our God is an honorable God. Not something we think about quite often, but that's exactly what he is. Now, how can we possibly be an imitator of him, like we're commanded in Ephesians 5, 1, and somehow think that a lack of virtue in our life is a good thing? Well, it's, uh, it's sure, sure become that way uh, here in the good old United States. If I started looking for just examples of that, uh, I don't think there'd be a place to stop because it's constantly generating new ones. And by the time we got through with one list, there would already be a new list started that we could go into to talk about a lack of, of virtue. Uh, when you have it in your highest levels of government, you you got a problem too. Like uh, the pro-life guy that was arrested in uh, Philadelphia a couple of days ago, 7 o'clock in the morning, a 25-person SWAT unit from the FBI was sent to arrest him over something that happened at a protest and a lawsuit that was brought that had already been dismissed. It had already been dismissed because one of the uh, the um, pro-choice people, so to speak, instead of the pro-life people, he took his 12-year-old son, and the kid, the man was in the face of the 12-year-old son, and he kept pushing him, and finally Daddy stepped in and pushed him back. Well, guess who got sued? The one who pushed him back. And what happened? To, went to court, got dismissed, and then the DOJ decided that they were going to take a look at it. So they go at 7 o'clock in the morning. This guy's got seven kids, and they go in and arrest him with a SWAT team. Now, really, what has this country come to? And is God going to let it go on? It's going to reach a point that uh, grace is going to run out. And that's just the way it is. It's the way it's been all through history. You keep pushing the grace of God, and grace runs out eventually. Now, we're looking at full knowledge and what it means. We've, looked, we've let it speak to us because as you're studying the Scripture, it is important to compare Scripture with Scripture. And to properly interpret a verse, you, ha you have to look at the, the immediate context that the verse is found in. 
That's where you start. What does the immediate context say? And to do that, you have to look at the words. Because the words inside those verses are what defines the context. And as you study deeper, you find out there are certain key words that are going to give you the key to the contextual flow. Because certain words are technical, which establish the meaning, and certain words are non-technical that are interpreted based on the other words that are around. So that's how you start looking at the immediate context of a verse. Then you look at is it where's the intermediate context? In other words, what's what does it say in the rest of the book? Because a lot of times you'll find a word that's used several times in the same book, and that includes the same authors. What did the author? How did the author use it? Like Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament, and so uh, did, how did he use the word in Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, uh, Timothy? How did he use these words in that uh, in those other locations? Now here we're dealing with Peter. He wrote first and second Peter. So you find out where is the intermediate context concerning Peter. And then the remote context is the rest of the Bible. And a correct interpretation is not going to violate any context. It's going to have the immediate context. It's going to have the intermediate context. Uh, and then the full remote context of the rest of the Bible. And that's how we have to study to be able to dig in and do that takes some time and it takes some effort. But it's worth all of, all of the effort. Study to show yourself approved unto God is really pretty clear. 2 Timothy 2.15 So <clears throat> we have seen, how we want to know, how is this word full knowledge used? And wanted to clear up some misconceptions about it because it didn't take, uh, doesn't take a seminary student very long that's studying Greek and Hebrew to find out that the word epinosis is not a special spiritual knowledge given to believers. It's readily apparent with a simple word study. So that's something that we have to keep in mind and that's something that we realize. So what does it mean if it's not a special spiritual knowledge? It is a knowledge that you have added to. You have understood more fully. It's just like, what is a full knowledge of Christ? Number one, he's God. That's not all there is to know about him, though, is there? He's fully man, just like he is fully God. Okay, did he become flesh? Yes. You start building this picture of a full knowledge of Christ. Did he walk on, was he born of a virgin? Yes. Did he walk on the earth perfectly? Yes. And you start adding, and when it, the more you gain of this, the fuller your knowledge becomes because you're building knowledge on knowledge. And that's where epinosis comes from. And that knowledge has to be believed because part of that epinosis is what do you really believe? Do you really believe this or not? Now, when verse 13, this is where we left off and you've got all those blanks filled in on, on some of the others or wherever I, I started the handout, but Verse 13, we should use the full knowledge of Christ. To do what? To become like him. So if you want to know about Christ, it's not enough just to study theology. I, I went all the way through seminary, and I just thought it was all about the study. And then I had a couple of churches, and it was all about the study. But where was the conformity of the image of Christ? And there are a couple of verses that keep 
it kept hammering me. John 5, 37, you search the scriptures because you think in them, the scriptures, you have eternal life. But these bear witness of me. He is the giver of eternal life, not the written word. So if you're studying the written word in order to just know the written word, because I know people have gone through seminary and come out a mess. Really. If you're, if you're, if you're just studying it so you'll have a knowledge of the written word, that's not good enough. John 7:17 7, says, If any man is willing to do his will, then he will know of the teaching. This is Jesus speaking. You really want to know the will of God. You really want to know what it has to say. You have to be willing to do it. And that requires an application. Uh, it requires an application. And do, do we want to become like Christ is the question. Colossians 3, verses 9 to 11 says, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self and its evil practices, and you put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge. That's epinosis. Now see, the New American Standard, the King James Version, they translate epinosis several different ways. I wish they would uh, maintain a concordance throughout, but the translators get a little bit loose and free, in my estimation, with their translations. Because epinosis is knowledge on knowledge, a full knowledge. Okay? And... <clears throat> But it says, to a true knowledge, that's okay, renewed to a full knowledge or true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. So when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you're entered into union with him, no matter, what does it say, your, your, your race here? No matter your social status, no matter your language, no matter, it's just a no matter, right? Whosoever believes in him is the invitation in John 3.16. So is it our ambition to do that which is pleasing in his sight in order to be like him? That's the question. What is the full knowledge of Christ to be used for? To become more and more like Christ. It's also used to determine his will. In 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If anybody thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, this is 1st century, 56 AD. The gift of prophecy was still functioning then. So Paul is addressing the, the spiritual gifts use in the Corinthian church, which was a mess. But he said, if you really think you're a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize, is how they translated it, but it's fully know. It's our epinosis word. Let him fully know that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. He says, what I'm saying to you came from the Lord. Now, it kind of sounds handy, doesn't it? Does it sound questionable? Maybe. What if I wrote to you, what if I said to you, everything that comes out of my mouth comes from the Lord. Would you go, so Monica knows me too well. <laughs> Everything. What? Now, why could Paul say this and I can't? Because there's a lot of TV preachers that'll make this claim, right? They'll make the claim that, yeah, whatever I say is right. Not even TV preachers will do that. But he, 
What did they have? What did he just talk to them about? What is he telling them? In chapter 12, all their gifts were haywire. But they had all the gifts. He commended them on that in 1 Corinthians 1. So they had all the spiritual gifts, which included prophet and discerning of spirits. Now, I think all the prophets were gone with the close of the book of Revelation. The gift of prophecy was gone. Now there might just be guesses, but it is not the gift of prophecy. Prophecy, the gift of prophecy, requires 100% accuracy. Not 99, not 90, and certainly not 10, like some of the famous prophets have been throughout the last century. It requires 100%. So if they had the gift of prophecy in the early church, which they did, and the gift of discerning of spirits, which they did, then those two gifts could say whether what Paul is saying is right or not. That's how they understood what was Scripture and what wasn't. Book of Corinthians, and we just got 2 Corinthians posted, but there were four letters to the Corinthian churches. Only two of them were kept, maintained, copied, and passed on. Why? Because the other two were not considered Scripture. They weren't. These two were. And the gift of prophecy could identify it when they got it and could read it and go, oh yeah, we better hang on to this. This is scripture. This is the word. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets is what it says. So we want to, to determine what his will is. And Paul said, you can check me. And they had the spiritual means to check Paul on what Paul was saying. What should we do? Use the full knowledge of Christ to find out what he wants for us. What else are we told about that? We can add some other verses in here real fast. And excuse me for keep throwing all these verses on you like a fire hydrant coming out. But uh, I've, I've been going verse by verse back through the New Testament, as you know. Romans 12, the first two verses of Romans chapter 12 says, Present your body a living holy sacrifice well-pleasing to God with your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you can determine what the will of God is. And you'll know it because it's good, it's acceptable, and it's mature, it's perfect. And that's what he said. So how are, you, how are we going to uh, determine his will? We need to submit our ourselves as a living, holy sacrifice if we really want to to know what his will is and then I'm sure we got to pray for wisdom I don't know if you have too much but I have to pray for wisdom all the time all the time now we're also called we need the full knowledge of him to accurately examine ourselves from 2 Corinthians 13 5 test yourselves it says to see whether or not you're in the faith examine yourselves uh, two different words there for testing, test and examine, that are found. And the second one, dokamazo, is testing with a view to approval. Sometimes we take a look at ourselves in the mirror of the Word of God, and we look back and you say, you're the biggest mess up that's ever lived in the history of the world. And we can get down on ourselves. But you know, you are created in the image of God. There is something good in you, although it's been suppressed by the sin nature. And that goodness is the fact you're created in the image of God. That's part of what brings the unbeliever to the knowledge of Christ. 
That's part of what does it. There's something good. There's an inherent knowledge of good and evil inside every human being, right and wrong. That's just that's the way it is. And so here is this test yourself with a view to approval. Now, it doesn't mean you embrace all the wrong things you're doing. Uh, that's actually our culture. And if you look at our culture, our culture says, yeah, if you're a mess up in this regard, oh, just accept it and move on. That's who I am. The Lord says, I love you too much to leave you that way. So I'm going to tell you what's wrong. I'm going to tell you what's wrong. So you, look in, you can look in the mirror, and hopefully when you get done, you're going to see me. Isn't that right? Because what happens when you refine silver? You, the silversmith knows that it's pure when he can see his reflection in the silver. All the impurities have been cooked out of it. And that's what the Lord wants us to see. He wants us to accurately examine ourselves. He wants us to abound in love. Now, this is, this is nice since... Uh, <clears throat> I'm sure we all think we're just the most kind, loving people that's ever walked on the face of the earth. And then there's a mental picture that comes in there. If you're like me, some people I have real trouble loving. Okay? They've hurt us. They've wronged us. They've harmed us. They've lied about us. They've done all kinds of things. And Lord, I'm supposed to love that person. You don't have to love the action, but the Lord loves them, doesn't he? Yeah, enough to die for them. He does. So part of being conformed to the image of Christ is learning to love as Christ loved. Learning to accept as he accepted us to the glory of God. Philippians 1.9, I pray <clears throat> that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge, epinosis, and all discernment. So you can approve the things that are excellent, virtuous. See, because as your love abounds, you learn more and more the importance of virtue and what that means. In order to be sincere and blameless till the day of Christ. How important is that in our preparation to stand in front of the Lord? <clears throat> Learning to love all the more. To be what? Sincere and blameless till the day of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of of God. <clears throat> so we should use the full knowledge of Christ to abound in love. We should use the full knowledge of Christ to have fellowship with the saints. Philemon. That little old bitty book just got it posted yesterday too. Philemon is a little old book with 25 verses found in it. And it's uh, Paul is writing to Philemon, good friend about a runaway slave named Onesimus. And he is asking, basically, to uh, set Onesimus free. But he also realizes in that culture and society that Philemon's the one that's got to make the decision on that. But Paul did some really good things in that he sent Onesimus back to Philemon so that they could work out the decision on this matter. So he said, Onesimus, you just can't run away. You need to go back and face the music. Figure out what needs to be done. But he made a plea to Philemon. <clears throat> he said, let him go. If he owes you anything, I'll pay it. And that was a view, quite a view, of Christ 
of Paul becoming Christ-like, right? He owes you something, I'll cover it. What did Christ do for us? We owed him everything. What did he do? He covered it. He was abounding in love. To have fellowship with the saints. Now we should seek to fully know. Again, looking at the word epinosis, taking its usages. Epinosis is the noun. Epigonosco is the verb. And so if I remember, we got about 65, 66 usages of the word that are found uh, in the New Testament. And to properly look at different things and word studies, then, then what they... Uh, what they want you to do, especially in seminary, if you're learning stuff, and you're doing the first thing. One of the first things they teach you is word studies. How to go about doing a word study, and one of the things they grade you on, if they have good teachers, is did you account for all the usages of the word? Do a word study. It's got, and of course they say you can pick out the word. I picked out a word in Hebrew one time, do a word study, and it was about pierce was the, the word, just to pierce like an arrow pierces. And it was a, quite an interesting word. And I picked it out because it only had about 20 usages of it. Because the rest of us did too. Because you want to pick out a word like agape, and you're over 100 usages in the New Testament. You've just fivefold increased your, your word study uh, on there. <clears throat> so, But you learn how to take and see how they fit together because as you take a word it's gonna and you study it it's gonna form a pattern as to its usages so you can better see this is what it's what it's about see we should use the full knowledge of Christ we had five points there <clears throat> very clearly spelled out become like Christ determine his will examine ourselves abound in love have fellowship with the other saints now as we study these verses verses and we start putting them together we should seek to fully know <clears throat> God's grace that is grounded in truth. What do we want to do with this knowledge? Well, Colossians 1, verses 3 to 6, says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world, also is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. <laughs> I'm laughing because Paul likes to put one sentence all together. Okay? And you read like Ephesians, and they give you Ephesians to exegete. Fairly early on in seminary, you get Ephesians to exegete, and you don't realize that like from verse 3 to 18 is one sentence because the translators said, we need some commas and we need some periods. Sounds like Mark Twain did this. Because what happened, Mark Twain, they, he sent a manuscript in with no punctuation. And the, 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 the uh, publisher sent it back and said, we need some punctuation in here. You know, like commas, periods, semicolons, all this other stuff. So but Mark Twain wrote out three lines of periods, three lines of commas, three lines. And he said, I don't know where they go. You just put them in where they fit best. <laughs> and so Paul writes about the same way with one flow of thought. So anyway, here this is one of these, these extended sentences. He says... <clears throat> Even it has been doing in you since the day you first heard it and understood is our word epinosis. 
fully knew the grace of the God in truth. The moment you came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you had a picture about who he was. You had a picture. So what do we want to do? We want to keep growing in grace. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter finishes out his epistles with that verse. The freedom we have in Christ. We should want to fully know the freedom we have in Christ. Because we're not given uh, freedom without responsibility in Christ. A lot of people have distorted the meaning of the word freedom. Freedom is often best translated as liberty. Because it comes with responsibilities that we have. Are you free to do this? Paul said all things are lawful, not all things are profitable. Yeah, you can, you can get away with a lot, but they're not profitable. And if you're doing things that are sinful, it's not going to cost you your salvation, but you can count on some divine discipline, and you can count on loss of eternal rewards. It's basically a waste of time to sin. The freedom we have in Christ is 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith. Now, is that happening now? Yeah. It's, uh, they're projecting, I think, uh, in the next 20 years or so that Christianity will be less than half of the country. That people connected to Christianity in any way, including the Catholics and the Episcopalians and and uh, you know people that just call themselves Christian and and are don't remotely function that way. Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, how does that happen? Well, if you read First John four. To me, it says that if, if you're a believer, you can't be demon-possessed. But you can certainly be demon-influenced. But unbelievers can be demon-possessed. So how do demons communicate often to and through unbelievers? That's, that's how it happens. They bring their doctrine of demons, just like it says. They have a doctrine that is a counterfeit of Christianity. You can count on it. And they speak to unbelievers. Unbelievers then put together things and they start talking to believers. Now, just because we're a believer doesn't mean we can't be deceived. In fact, how many verses have we seen about being deceived over the last few weeks? Believers can be faked out of their shoes real easy and spiritually included. And he says, what happens in the latter days? People will pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared into their own consciences with a branding iron. So the unbelievers can can get into this and believers can become a part of it, get wrapped up in it. They get on the bandwagon. He says, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. Now, I believe what Paul's talking about here. Uh, initially was the rise of Roman Catholicism because that wasn't forbidden in any of the churches till the rise of Roman Catholicism and that within the priesthood which God has created what? marriage and food to gratefully be gratefully shared in by those who believe 
and epinosis, the truth. Hmm. So we've got food and we've got marriage to those who know the truth. God has given us those things. So we need to know the freedom that we have in Christ. Just going back through 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians has got chapters in there about uh, the dinner party. It's often the chapter has been called the dinner party, chapter 9. And what happens whenever you go to a place and you're offered meat uh, that has been um, offered to idols? That doesn't mean anything to us, does it? But in the ancient world, it meant a lot. And he gives instructions about how to use your freedom. That's where it says all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. You do the profitable things that benefit your brother and sister. And they say if if they make a deal out of it, okay, Paul says it's an idol. An idol is nothing. So why worry about it? So it's not about the fact it was offered to an idol. It's how is it going to affect your brother? That's the question. That's the question you have to ask. So if they make a deal out of it, don't eat it. Okay? If you find out, if you don't know about it, and it's not a big deal, go ahead. Go ahead and eat it. He said because an idol is nothing, so it was really offered to nothing, and it really doesn't mean anything when you start looking at it. But you don't make big deals out of non-essential stuff. Now, how about God's righteousness? We ought to seek to fully know his righteousness. From Romans chapter 10, in the first three verses, says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. Talking about the Jews. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. The Jews, they look like they're God-fearing people in a lot of ways, but not in accordance with epinosis. Hmm. What points did they miss? Remember, this is 1st century. Romans about 56 A.D. with 1st and 2nd Corinthians, written all about the same time. And what do they still have? Jews still offering up sacrifices, and the real sacrifice has already been there. When they have rejected Jesus in the 1st century, they don't have a full knowledge of who Messiah is or who God is. For not knowing about God's righteousness... And seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So we ought to fully know what God's righteousness is. What does God say is sin? And what does he say is not? Now, it amazes me, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, how legalisms can become more well-known than actually what God wants us to do. Can being a moral person save you? No. Can't do it. You can live a perfectly moral life all of your life. Will it get you into heaven? Nope. Won't do it. To think it will is legalism. But to think it is a valid lifestyle to be involved in all of those sins of immorality and stuff That's wrong. It's missed the point. So we should want to know about God's righteousness. He gave it to us the moment we were saved. With that, we became a new creation in Christ. We underwent a new birth. And we have this righteousness on the inside 
brought to us by the Holy Spirit, who is God, who is righteous, who's moved inside, and he is in a war now with his flesh, this fleshly body that we have. And this fleshly body is saying, no, I want to do it my way. And the Spirit is encouraging us to do it God's way. And there's this war going on. And we should want to become more and more righteous in our thoughts, in our speech, and in our actions. That's what we should want to be. If we have no desire or don't care about that, then um, uh, how's it ever going to happen? You say, well, there's other passages too. Seem like Peter wrote, be ye holy as he is holy. That's all about righteousness. Holiness is about righteousness. So <clears throat> we should want to fully know about God's righteousness and want to know it better. Again, growing. Now, false teachers of the last days are ever learning, but they're never able to come to the full knowledge of the truth, the epinosis of the truth. False teachers of the last days. 2 Timothy 3 starts off, in the last days difficult times will come. So it establishes the context. Verse 6, Among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins and led, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the epinosis of the truth. So they have a lot of information, but they don't have a full knowledge of the truth. You know, they can study science, and they come up with gravitational constants, and they come up with all the different you know, laws of physics and stuff that if they varied just a little bit, we wouldn't exist. The earth wouldn't exist. It just wouldn't happen. They came up with that. But who put all those in place? Did they just happen by accident? Well, um, evidently not. Somebody put them in place. One of the things about the trib... Because we know it's a judgment on the gods of mankind. The tribulation is a lot like the judgment on the gods of Egypt for the Jews walked out of Egypt. Much the same. And what are they doing? God is judging all the things that human beings worship instead of him. One of the things he's going to be judging is science. The so-called scientific method. Now how is he going to do that? Let's see, the sun goes nova in the tribulation uh, how do we survive if the sun knows how does earth continue to exist how does it happen we get hit by a meteor from outer space second trumpet judgment how does how do we continue to exist didn't it ex make the dinosaurs extinct before all the things that we think are going to be uh, that what stabilizes this because sometimes people put their faith in science more than they do than the one that made it. <clears throat> Ever learning. Never able to come to full knowledge of the truth. Have you read that book, Is Atheism Dead? If you manage to get it and read through it. It's uh, an excellent book. And I don't agree with everything that's in it. Uh, it's kind of like eating fish. Take the bones out and get the rest of it. But uh, he doesn't agree with me either, so that's fine. We can disagree, but at least there's a conversation in that book about some really important things. Well, is atheism dead? No, it's alive and well on planet Earth. 
But actually, science, which is a promoter of atheism through natural causes, science is shooting itself in the foot. The Big Bang Theory, when did it happen? Well, they think they've got a date for it. Fine. We can argue dates later on, but the fact that there is a beginning to the universe destroys evolution. It destroys it because they need all this time for things to happen by chance, and no matter how much time they had, they cannot find a reasonable way that all this stuff came together by chance. There has to be a designer. There are scientists who are realizing that there is a God above who is the one that brought this all into existence. We'll be able to identify false prophets by an epinosis of their fruits. See where this word is used? Isn't this helpful? What about full knowledge? Matthew 7, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will fully know, epinosis, them by their fruit. What do false prophets do? Well, if you read Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18, which I know the Lord knew quite well, being part of the inspiration of that to begin with, if they make a prophecy and it comes true and they say follow other gods, then there were false prophets. And if they make a prophecy and it doesn't come true, they're a false prophet. That's very clearly laid out from early on, especially to, to the Jews. We'll be able to identify them because are they saying follow other gods? Are they saying to <clears throat> follow this ethereal god that is, that is out there and it's kind of a deist view that he, uh, man fell and God hadn't had anything to do with him ever since and all that? That's following other gods. Our God is a personal God reached into time. He made us to begin with. He made this world and the universe to begin with. Reached into time and space and redeemed us. Now, that's what happened. Those who preach another gospel preach something different than that. To turn one's back on the full knowledge of the truth is to enter dangerous territory. To turn one's back on the full knowledge of the truth is to enter dangerous territory. It says in Hebrews 10.26, this is the passage that when we go overseas and talk to pastors and everything, we talk to them about the assurance of their salvation. Once you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has promised that you will have eternal life. And it's all about his promise and not you. Once you put your faith there, it becomes his responsibility to keep you saved. It's argued in Romans 5. It's argued all over the New Testament. You are sure to your salvation once you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what about this verse? If we go on sinning willfully <clears throat> after receiving the full knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire that will consume the adversaries. And I love this passage because we talk about assurance of salvation and some pastor in the back starts going and opens his Bible and he reads Hebrews 10.26 and we're ready for it. Our response is we're glad you brought that up because now we get to talk to you about context. Reading scripture in context. Start with verse 1 of chapter 10 with me. 
And what do you find? You find that there's one sacrifice for sin for all time, Jesus Christ, and that's it. Hebrews 10.1, 10.10. One sacrifice for sin for all time. He talks about the Levitical priests that continue to offer up sacrifices in, even though they shouldn't be anymore because Jesus offered the sacrifice. What did the Jews, this is a letter to the Hebrews, right? They used the animal sacrifices thinking the sacrifice actually paid for their sins, the animal sacrifices. But now with the new priesthood and the animal sacrifices invalidated, he says, go ahead and sin willfully because it's not like it once was, guys. You just thought you could just go ahead and sin and bring the right offering. Hmm. Just bring a sin offering. Just bring a trespass offering. Just do it once or twice a year and everything is covered and you're going to go to heaven because of it. And the writer of Hebrews says, not going to work that way. Never really did work that way, but never has, never will, and certainly doesn't now. What is there? If a Jew who's a sinner can't bring a sacrifice to atone for their own sins, well, what are they going to do about it? They're going to have to look to the Redeemer and the one who brought the atonement themselves. Now, <clears throat> it can be dangerous to turn one's back on a full knowledge of the truth. Now, <clears throat> epinosis, seek to not turn from the full knowledge of righteousness. 2 Peter 2, that's where we're headed in this book, 21, says, For it would have been better for them not to have fully known the way of righteousness than having fully known it, to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. He's talking about the people of the last days, the prophets of the last days, who turn and follow the teachings of Baal, Balaam, actually, and Balaam was a charlatan. That's what he was. He was a real prophet, interestingly enough, but every time he opened his mouth to curse Israel to get more money, what happened? A blessing came out. That's why he got reamed out by a donkey. On You know, he had a, Lord, what's going on here? And the donkey said, you idiot, paraphrasing. <clears throat> but that's what Balaam was. But the, the principle of trying to sell the word of God has, has been clearly taught in Balaam back early on in the Mosaic Law and now it's still going on. And he says... People today are turning away from the, oh, what's the holy commandment? John explains it, loving God and loving one another, viewed as one. That's the holy commandment. And they turn people away from that. And we're called to seek to help those who have turned away from it. From 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. That's instructions to pastors and believers, <laughs> if you're a bond servant, and it says don't don't be an argue, argumentative person, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the full knowledge of the truth. People that have been enswayed, then those who are called to be ministers of Christ says with gentleness correcting those in opposition that's how it starts but occasionally it doesn't end there 
Look at Christ. How did he start teaching the masses? With gentleness. How did he end up? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he was right in their face. And he says, hopefully they've come to their senses, escaped from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him, the devil, to do his will. So seek to help those who have. So here is a picture of epinosis, translated full knowledge, sometimes true knowledge, but it means a knowledge upon a knowledge. And it is not just the simple basics of knowledge. It is a full, a fuller knowledge that has facts added to it. And we have to remember that when we run into the word. And again, I wish they'd translated the word the same way all through the New Testament. But they had teams of translators working on different books, and that's why they ended up with different translations. But that's why we go back to the original languages. Because then we can track and see how did God inspire these words to be used. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for this day, for your love and mercy and grace. Thank you for your blessings and your test. And, Father, we just thank you. And once again, in your word, you've, you've shown us what you want from us, what you desire for us, what you expect from us. And, Father, we are so blessed to have your word to lead and guide. So, Father, may we... Uh, today remember what we've been taught and may we be able to use it wisely for we ask it in Jesus name amen